Gospels and turn with me to 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. And I'll be reading the entire chapter. We begin a series today through the epistle of 1 John. And I pray that God will use His Word to challenge our hearts and our lives to bring ever greater conformity to the image of Christ. <clears throat> beginning with verse 1. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled, concerning the word of life. The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you also may have fellowship with us. And truly our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ, And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, We have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and his word is not in us. We're living in an age in which there is an explosion, literally an explosion of Religious experiences, all claiming to bring one into a real knowledge of God. Many in our Western culture have experienced with the atheistic solutions of communism in politics, evolution in science, and rationalism in philosophy. They have found these particular ideas to be absolutely worthless in trying to bring them to a knowledge of God or to bring solutions to life. And so they have hopped on the pendulum and they've swung to the opposite extreme from these atheistic solutions. They have swung to the extreme of transcendentalism. They want to experience a spiritual reality that transcends now empirical senses 
of seeing and hearing and touching. And as a result, the mystic religions of the East and the New Age movement, with its emphasis upon salvation by a new knowledge, by a new self-consciousness of who they are, of the divine self within them, is breaking out even into churches today. It's no longer something that we associate with the Eastern religions, but it's something that has come into churches as well. What these various religious groups have in common is a subjective, mystical, existential experience as the means of knowing God. What these groups, however, totally avoid to varying degrees is an objective, historical revelation of God's will as the means of knowing God. You see, when there is an objective standard such as the Bible that all men must answer to and that mystics must as well answer to, One's experience must be defined as true or false based upon the judgment of that standard, not upon their own experience. And mystics, those who are into experiencing God through these various mystical relationships, don't want any kind of a standard to judge their experience. And so they have always strategized as to how they can manipulate, how they can massage, how they can, in various ways, reconstruct, revise the standard, the historical document, the Word of God to conform to their experience. In the area of politics... I think we have mystics as well. We call them liberals. Those who politically do not want to adhere to the historical documents, the constitutions, the standard that has been established and upon which this nation and upon which the United States was based and to which a large degree acknowledges those Christian principles that we find in the Word of God? And how do the, the political mystics get around very clear statements as to the teaching of Scripture concerning various issues? Well, they seek to revise and reinterpret history. Most of them realize they can't simply do away with the standard and so they try to, to, to put historical, uh, the document in a historical situation in such a way that it just interprets, reinterprets what occurred at that time. <clears throat> they go very clearly to the, what they call the spirit of the law rather than to the letter of the law. And so they continue to introduce their own progressive 
ideas into an understanding of that original constitution. What the founders meant in writing the constitution is essentially unimportant. After all, such historical documents cannot remain, they say, dead documents. They must be living documents that come alive to every succeeding generation. And how is that going to happen? Well, we have to put a new face on it. We have to reinterpret that document to fit in with our present experience, our present view. Well, dear ones, liberals who are, who are in the religious area Religious liberals and mystics of all periods have clearly understood this principle as well. <coughs> it was as true in the time of the Apostle John as it is today. You see, the labels of these various religious groups may change from time to time. But basically, the same strategy stands in the way of our experience. It judges our experience, and we can't have that to be the case. We must, in some way, try to, to reconstruct and revise it. Most of them realize that if they were to completely do away with the standard, again, they would not have the same kind of following. They would not be able to get the same kind of adherence if they simply did away with the Word of God, with the Scripture. And so, they try to... to Reconstruct it. <clears throat> the Epistle of John, First uh, John, I'm sorry, the Epistle of First John was really written to combat one of the greatest threats to biblical Christianity in the first and second centuries. It was the heresy or the error of Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis, which means knowledge. And so this was a religion. It was a way of thinking that I can grow and I can know God through special knowledge. Not the knowledge that's revealed in the Word of God, but through speculative, mystical, imaginative knowledge that comes through an experience. That that's how I grow and come to know God. Well, this epistle of 1 John is written to demonstrate to Christians of the first century and Christians of the 20th century as well that where there is no objective historical revelation of God's unalterable will, there is no true knowledge of God and therefore there can be no fellowship with God. Do away with this objective historical standard, and there is no true knowledge of God. And if there's no true knowledge of God, we have no knowledge by way to have fellowship with God. One follows from the other. <clears throat> the Gnostics were claiming to have a true knowledge of God through these mystical experiences, but the inspired epistle says that's a lie. 
you are not having and you are not gaining true knowledge of God through your experiences. Dear ones, how today we need to be continually reminded that experience is not the final judge of truth. How many times I've heard it said when I've talked with various people who are wrapped up in that aspect of Christianity, of experiencing everything, uh, that the Christian life becomes one experience to another. How many times I have heard, I know what I've experienced. I know what I've experienced. Well, I can tell you with absolute certainty that if anyone goes after experiences and they judge that to be the criteria of truth, even Satan will give them the kind of experience that they're looking for. And they won't know what hit them. God's Word alone, dear ones, holds that position of final judge. We find in the Westminster Confession of Faith these words. The Supreme Judge by which all controversies of religion are to be determined, and all decrees of councils, opinions of ancient writers, doctrines of men, and private spirits are to be examined, and in whose sentence we are to rest can be no other but the Holy Spirit speaking in the Scripture." speaking in the Scripture. That is the Supreme Judge. Everything must fall before the Word of God. Religious experiences, therefore, must never reform Scripture. Scripture must always reform our experience. Now, I'm not opposed to experience I am very much in favor of experiential, experimental Christianity, living out in the Christian life the fruits of the Spirit, godliness, zeal for the Lord. I'm not opposed to to, uh, religious affections and sanctified emotions in, in the Christian life. Jesus had a zeal that consumed Him for the for God's house. So should we for the purity of worship, for the holiness of God, we should be jealous. We should have love for one another and exhibit that. We should have vows of mercy and compassion for the brethren. It should flow from our mouths and it should flow from our eyes in the form of tears and weeping for those who weep and rejoicing with those who rejoice. So understand, dear ones, that is not what John is saying in this epistle, nor is it what I am saying. I am saying that our experience must always find the Word of God as its supreme judge. We do not gain secret knowledge as the Gnostics taught through simply an experiential relationship with God through mystical kinds of experiences.
Though we may not uh, declare this to be mystical religion, I would say that it falls in a similar kind of camp. Anytime we begin to introduce into the worship of God things which God has not commanded, we are introducing new ideas. Now, we may not say, well, God told me to do this through this particular experience, but nevertheless, we are imposing our particular ideas upon the Word of God at that point. What we do in worship, what we do in our Christian life must always be in submission to the Word of God. As we look at this text, I want to just make some preliminary remarks at the outset, since it is our first sermon through 1 John. (coughs) We need to know just some background information. And so, uh, first of all, under preliminary remarks, let's uh, consider the author of this uh, epistle. There are only two epistles in the New Testament that do not have the name of the author uh, attached to them. And that is uh, 1 John and Hebrews. (coughs) That uh, does not and should not present a problem to us uh, that they are nevertheless inspired. Uh, they, They are the Word of God. God has included them in His canon. They bear the marks of inspiration. We find, however, that there is also an abundance of testimony, external testimony, of the early church fathers that uh, credit this particular epistle to the Apostle John. Papias, Irenaeus, Clement of Alexandria, Tertullian, and on and on. Early church fathers who, who say and declare that First John, this epistle, was written by the Apostle John. Furthermore, as we look at the internal evidence, we find <coughs> that, we've, that the uh, author says that, in effect, he was an eyewitness to the Lord Jesus Christ. He, he was an eyewitness. He heard the words of Christ. He saw the miracles of Christ. He beheld the transfigured Christ. He handled the risen Christ. Here is an eyewitness to all of these things. Many of the phrases and words and themes that we find in 1 John are also mentioned in the Gospel of John. For example, the idea of abiding. A new commandment. Eternal life. That phrase for Christ, the Word. Light versus darkness. Truth versus error, those and many others lead us again to see a relationship between the author of the Gospel of John and the author of First John. And lastly, the author of First John speaks with apostolic authority. He doesn't speak as one who is tentative, who's not sure, but he speaks forth the Word of God as the truth of God. Look at 1 John 1.5. 
This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. The author claims to have received a message from God which he now declares to his readers. In chapter 2, verse 8, Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. A new commandment. <coughs> so the author, and we will see as we continue throughout, throughout this epistle, that the author speaks with a self-conscious apostolic authority. How about the recipients of this uh, letter? Who were they? Well, the letter was probably sent, since we do not know or have identified any specific church that it was sent to. It was most likely sent as a circular letter to several churches within a geographical location. And it would be read by one church and then passed on to the other churches in that particular area. And so this would take in maybe not one specific church, most likely, but several churches. What about the occasion? Why was this letter written in the first place? What was the need for writing it? <coughs> well, this letter is directed to a very specific situation that was occurring in these churches. False prophets had separated themselves and their followers from the fellowship and worship of the church. Chapter 2, verse 19 says, They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that they might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And so here's the problem. You find... <clears throat> those who were formerly associated with the church, leaving the church for a false gospel. They're leaving and following these false prophets, these false teachers. And so the, the Apostle John directs this letter to these believers with that particular situation in mind to, to encourage the saints to remain steadfast and to correct the abuses. You see, faithful preaching always rebukes error, but also encourages those in the truth. It doesn't simply beat people over the head with the truth, but it encourages. And as you read 1 John, you find that fatherly spirit of the Apostle John saying, my children, my little children. He appeals to them as a father and the Lord. And so... We find in these particular chapters the Apostle John's appeal to remain faithful and as well the, the correction, the refutation of these errors that were being circulated in the church. We should never apologize as ministers of the gospel for refuting error. Now, I know in some churches it's not very popular to refute error. To be uh, cast as being intolerant 
because you call error, error, sin, sin. But the Apostle John, as we read, will have no trouble identifying those who are liars, who are antichrists, who are walking in a way not according to love and holiness. You see, these particular people that had left the churches here, these false prophets and false teachers, it appears that their actions seem to have been revolving around the fact that they said that they had received some special anointing from the Holy Spirit, which the average Christian had not received. In chapter 2, verses 20 and 27, John says, But you, speaking to those who are believers, (coughs) you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you know all things. In other words, you know all things from from what John had revealed to them, what they have heard from God through the prophets and apostles. You know all things that, that are required for glorifying and enjoying God. God has revealed those things to you. Verse 27, John says, But the anointing which you have received from Him abides in you, and you do not need that anyone teach you, but as the same anointing teaching, teaches you concerning all things, and is true, and is not a lie, and just as it is taught you, you will abide in Him. John, by saying that, is encouraging the, the faithful that they have the true anointing that comes from God, the Holy Spirit, living and abiding with them so that they can understand His Word. That's not to say that they're going, not going to have a difficulty understanding certain phrases or certain ideas. Even the Apostle Peter said, there are certain things about Paul's writing that are hard to understand. <clears throat> but we have all, and we have sufficient understanding through the Spirit who has enlightened our minds to understand God's will as it pertains to glorifying Him. Now, we may need some help occasionally, advice and counsel. And it's not telling us that we can't appeal to to elders or pastors for counsel and advice. But don't be misled by false teachers who claim to have some special anointing from God. You see, this was an incipient form of the heresy of Gnosticism and that was to become full-blown in the second century. The two main tenets of Gnosticism were, number one, that they had access, they said, to a higher knowledge that others didn't have access to through this anointing, through this experience, this mystical experience. (coughs) And the second main contention of of the Gnostics was this, that matter, that which is material, is essentially evil, and that which is spirit is essentially good. And upon these two contentions, they built an entire system. And in fact, we find, for example, with regard to uh, the second tenet, viewing that which is material as evil, that they therefore denied the creation 
as being that work of God. They said God could not have created all things because if he did, he created that which was evil because matter is evil. And so they reconstructed and revised the biblical accounts that it must be that there were these emanations that came from God. And once those emanations or these, these beings got far enough from God, several generations away from God, <clears throat> they could then, one of them could have created, and one of them did create. They called it a demiurge. Uh, one of these lesser beings <clears throat> that came from God. But God didn't create all things. Because God is spirit. God is essentially good. He couldn't create that which is evil. And so there's this, this, this kind of a dualism between that which is spirit and that which is material. They also denied, therefore, the incarnation. How could Christ, how could God become man? God and man cannot be united because he cannot take on a body. That's evil. That's wicked. And therefore, they had to interpret and reinterpret and revise the biblical account again and say that Jesus Christ was just a man and that at his baptism, the Christ consciousness, does that sound familiar? The Christ consciousness came upon him and indwelt him until his crucifixion, at which time the Christ consciousness left him because you can't have God <clears throat> suffering. Therefore, it had to leave him before. And so Christ therefore suffered as simply a man. You see the essentials that it denies. It denies the resurrection. Why would one want to be raised in the first place? What our goal is to, is, is to escape from this body. Why would you want to be imprisoned in the body again? And so this heresy of Gnosticism was one of the great heresies that sought to undermine biblical Christianity at this time. In regard to their ethical standards, they went to one stream or to another in the way that they lived out their faith. They went to either the extreme of asceticism where they punished the body, where they deprived the body, or they went to the other extreme of indulging the body, an antinomianism, where they just didn't care what they did with their body. And so they could live in gross immorality because it didn't matter what you did with your body because your body was evil and wicked anyway. And so it could go to either extreme. And we can still find within uh, the, the realm of uh, Christianity, under the umbrella of Christianity, those who would, who would uh, be more ascetic and punish and deprive their bodies. Uh, various forms of monasticism and Roman Catholicism. Certainly, uh, Martin Luther, uh, in his pilgrimage to the truth was one who sought to deprive and to punish the body. And you have other extremes where there's kind of a libertinism. 
It doesn't matter what you do. And so you get into various groups that uh, just uh, say, live it up. It doesn't make any difference anyway. <coughs> but all of these unbiblical views ultimately undermine the authority and the sufficiency of Scripture. Because true knowledge of God does not come through these mystical experiences, but through the revelation of God alone. Well, let's quickly, in the remaining few minutes that we have, let's quickly take a look at the text that's before us. Consider verses 1 through 4, the introduction to this particular epistle. At the very outset, John's concern is to establish his message not upon mystical subjective experience, but rather upon the objective eyewitness account of God's revelation that was given to him as an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice what he says in chapter 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. That's the apostolic we that he is referring to there. That which we, the apostles, have seen and heard, that which we are eyewitnesses of, which God himself revealed to us, that is what we declare unto you, John says. It's historical, it's objective, it is the revelation of God. It didn't come simply out of somebody's mystical experience, uh, somebody's mind or brain, but it was revelation from God through Jesus Christ. The The Apostle John's defense of the truth begins in this historical revelation, then, of the One whom he calls the Word of Life. Verse 1. that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. What John proclaimed, he says, was firmly established in redemptive history. It didn't come from somebody's head. He first points out The theme. There are two points that I'll be focusing my attention on at this point. Uh, The theme, the second point being the purpose of the message. The theme of the message that John preached and proclaimed. And second, the purpose of that message. So we'll focus our thoughts upon those two ideas from the text this time. The theme of John's message, he says in verse 1, was concerning... The word of life. His message was distinctly Christ-centered rather than man-centered. John's message focused upon the glorious person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, John describes Christ as the word of life. That is, as the divine expression, the divine revelation of life. See, a word 
And we find many times this phrase occurring in the Old Testament. The word of the Lord came to so-and-so or this prophet or that prophet. It is the communication, the expression, the revelation that is communicated by that word, word. The word, the revelation of life is Jesus Christ. This one of whom John speaks is not a recipient of life. He is the author of life. He gives life and existence to all things according to the Word of God. In fact, in John 1, the Gospel of John, John chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. I think it would be good just to read that passage because it illuminates this concept that Jesus Christ is the giver and author of life. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of man. In Him was life. See, this is the one who was the eternal, who is eternal God, who dwelt in eternity, who created all things that John says, we beheld, we handled, we heard with our ears. This is the same one. The mighty God. The Gnostics, like many today, preached Christ. In other words, they did not deny Jesus Christ. They preached Christ. They even preached faith in Christ. But it was not the Christ revealed in redemptive history and revealed in the Holy Scriptures. It was not the same Christ. The Gnostics' Christ was one of their own imagination. They were worshipping, therefore, a false Christ. They were worshipping an idol that was created in their own image rather than the living God. And so, again, as we pointed out last Lord's Day, it is not simply the issue of faith and trust, but it is the object of our faith and trust. Who is that placed in? Is that faith in the living God as revealed in the Scriptures? Well, the Gnostics' concept of Christ was not the one revealed in Holy Scripture or in redemptive history. (coughs) For the Gnostic, he was not the God-man, but simply a righteous human being upon whom the Christ fell at his baptism and left at his crucifixion. Their Christ was not the author of life. And that's why John says, He is the Word of life. Their Christ, their Jesus, whom they proclaimed, the Gnostics proclaimed, was not the author of life. In 
How many, I think, today have been sucked into various cults, into various churches because they thought they were a Christian church because they proclaimed Christ? How many times people have said, after all, they believe in Christ. You see, dear ones, again, the word of life is the Christ of the Bible. No other Christ, dear ones, has the power to redeem and to save a person from their sin and from destruction. Only that Christ that's revealed in Scriptures has that power and authority. Let me simply say as well concerning the theme, still talking about the theme of the message which is the word of life. <clears throat> For preaching to be biblical, it must be Christ-centered. Man's great need today is not to hear from ministers how to be prosperous or how to be well-liked or how to feel good about oneself. Or even how to be happy. Man's great need today, and hear me carefully, man's great need today is to hear of Christ who is the Word of life. Preaching should always bring those who hear to the feet of Christ for faith, for repentance, for knowledge, for comfort, for correction, for hope, for courage, and even for bread and clothing and shelter, to the feed of Christ, who is the Word of life. Preaching should not be, therefore, entertaining. It should be Christ-centered. It should be centered around the Christ revealed in the Holy Scriptures. Only in that Christ is there hope, dear ones. There's not hope in any other Christ. There's not hope in any other message that one might hear from a minister in a pulpit on this Lord's Day. There is only hope for your family. There is only hope for this nation. There's only hope for this church in Jesus Christ. He is the salvation not only of our souls, not only of our bodies, but of our families, of our church, of our nation, and of the world. Jesus Christ. And therefore, dear ones, preaching shouldn't even be family-centered. Preaching shouldn't be even church-centered. There are many, many messages that may revolve around simply family life. And I have, I'm not opposed to preaching on the family. But as we preach on the family, we must always have the focus of Jesus Christ as the center not simply how we get along 
relationally with one another. Some good suggestions or some good ideas about how not to rub one another the wrong way. That's not to be the focus of preaching. Christ is to be the focus. There alone is our hope. Paul said it this way, For me to live is Christ. See, Paul's life consisted, and he could narrow it down to one thing. Life means to me Christ. What does life mean to you, dear ones? Is your life consist essentially of Christ? Everything else can be taken away. Everything else can pass away. But what is essential about our life as a Christian is Christ. This text also points out concerning the theme of the message of John That is, the word of life, that's the theme. It also points out in the very first verse, 1 John 1, 1, that this Christ is from the beginning. This word of life is from the beginning. That's pointing out His eternity, that He is the eternal God. It does not say that He came to be from the beginning. He was from the beginning. In the Greek, there are two different words that are used in John chapter 1, the Gospel of John. The Greek word, I me, as opposed to the Greek word, genomai. And you find this contrast in John 1, 1 and John 1, 3. The word was in the beginning. He was with God. He is God. However, when it comes to speak of those things that come into being, it uses a different word in verse 3. All being, that is one Greek word, genomai, or that various, uh, the various tense that needs to be supplied there, but it, the root word is genomai, came into being. The same truth is taught here. John does not say that this one came into being from the beginning. He was from the beginning emphasizing the fact that he didn't find his origin at the beginning. He was already in existence at the beginning. This is the one who became flesh, John says. This is the one, he says in verse 2, who was with the Father. Again, that same word, was not came to be with the Father, but was with the Father. Was face to face with the Father. That preposition connotes that kind of relationship, face to face. He had that fellowship from eternity with the Father. And so it emphasizes not only the fact that God, or that the Word of life is God from eternity, but that there is as well more than one who is God. There is the Father and the Son. There is one God, but there is Three persons that comprise the Godhead. But this is the one, John says in verse 1, that they, that the apostles heard, he heard the glorious truths that fell from Christ's mouth. 
He says, we have seen. Can you imagine what he, what's behind that word? We have seen. Think of all the miracles that John saw. We have seen the, the, the death healed. We have seen the blind made to see. We have seen the lame to walk. We have seen Him walk upon the waters. We have seen Him pray and multiply bread and fish and to feed thousands. We have seen Him change water into wine. We have seen Him raise the dead. We've seen that with our eyes, that objective historical revelation. And when He says, furthermore, we have looked upon. We have looked upon. We have beheld. This is a more intense gaze as opposed to the previous verb. This one talks about gazing upon, beholding. And probably it's the same word that is used in John chapter 1 when it says, we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father. In other words, I believe what John is saying at this point, we beheld the transfigured Christ upon the Mount of Transfiguration. The glory of Christ. And then finally, we handled Him. That is, we handled the resurrected Christ. The Son of God. This is the God who existed from eternity who has become a man. That completely contradicted all that the Gnostics taught and believed. Finally, the purpose of John's message. <clears throat> Very quickly, the purpose of John's message is twofold. <clears throat> the theme is the word of life. The purpose of that message is your fellowship with God the Father and His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the first purpose. And the second purpose is your complete and full joy. You see, the goal of salvation, dear ones, is not to be thought of in terms of the removal of sin's guilt. That's not the goal of salvation, the removal of our guilt. The goal of salvation is not simply rescuing us from hell. The goal of salvation is... is not your happiness. The goal of salvation is not freedom from temptation or from pain or from sorrow. The, the goal of salvation, the ultimate purpose of salvation is fellowship with the eternal God. To love and enjoy the eternal God is the purpose of salvation. To be in communion with God where sin does not hamper or hinder. See, those are things that have to be taken out of the way and we praise God for all of those blessings that God has given to us in our salvation. But that is not the goal of salvation. It would be to say that we are to enjoy more the, the blessings or the gifts that God gives than we are to enjoy the giver of those gifts. The goal is to enjoy the living God. 
And dear ones, if we have not progressed to that point in our walk with Jesus Christ to where we see that as the goal of our salvation and where we are enjoying that fellowship daily with Christ, and if we see or, or, or know that that fellowship, that communion has been hindered, that we don't go on for days and days and days just thinking what doesn't make any difference, but we see that we, the remedy is to come to Him, forsake our sin, to turn from it, to seek His forgiveness and to be restored. That's the fellowship that is offered to you through the Word of Life, through the Lord Jesus Christ, fellowship with God, fellowship with Jesus Christ, and thereby, Paul or John says, you have fellowship with us. See, fellowship with one another only comes because we have fellowship with the Lord. The second purpose is that of joy. You see, what follows and what flows from fellowship with God is a full and complete joy. Not happiness as we understand understand happiness in the English language. Not happiness. Joy. You see, happiness is, is something that someone has defined this way. Happiness happens. But joy abides. Happiness happens, but joy endures. Happiness, dear ones, comes at certain times when you are pleased, but it fades when you're not pleased. Happiness responds to the circumstances around you. In fact, the English word happiness is derived from the old English word hap, which means that which happens for chance. And so happiness comes and goes. Now, that doesn't mean that it's wrong to be happy. It's good for us all to be happy. It doesn't mean it's wrong to be sad over certain things as well. But that's not the extent. That's not the goal toward which we we strive is happiness. Complete and full joy is the result that God promises from fellowship with Him. John speaks of a joy or if I might use another word, a contentment that abides even in the face of desperate circumstances. You may ask, how is that possible? Well, because joy is not based upon circumstances. It's not based upon how others treat you. Happiness might be, but not joy. Rather, joy is based upon Christ being your life. And since Christ cannot be taken from you, you have joy in every circumstance. There is a contentment, a deep-seated contentment in Christ because of that. You see, everything around you, dear ones, can be taken from you. And if your joy or if your contentment is in those things, you'll never know and never experience contentment in this life. But if your contentment and your joy is in one who cannot be taken from you, 
is in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will always find that even in the midst of sorrow and pain, that there is an underlying deep contentment that causes you to persevere, that brings you to the feet of Christ, that uses even those desperate situations to humble you and to break your heart before God, rather than making you obstinate and stubborn before God. That joy that God gives, that contentment within Well, is it too late? Is it too late uh, if you are now just learning these truths? My wife talked with a friend last night who has many regrets about, though she was a Christian, many things that she trained and taught her children or did not teach and train her children that she should have. And now she's experiencing her children are in their 20s and she is experiencing some real negative reactions from her children. And she's having a difficult time coping with these things that are happening because she's so regretful. She sees what she did wrong, but she knows she can't go back and change what's done. Dear ones, it's not too late. It's not too late to find fellowship with the living God and to experience his joy even over past mistakes and sins and errors that you may regret. It's not too late. Place your faith and your hope in the, the word of life, the Lord Jesus Christ, who brings that fellowship to his people. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, We do ask and plead with you now to seal the truth into the hearts of your people. That our faith is not founded upon mystical experiences, but is grounded upon the immovable rock and foundation of the living Word of God, upon the promises of God, the objective truth that's revealed in redemptive history, And our faith, dear God, cannot be shaken. Oh, Father, I pray that you would cause your truth to grip your people today. And that you would cause where in our lives there has been a foreignness, a separation, a strangeness in our relationship to you, that, God, you would heal us now. That you would revive us that you would draw us with those unbreakable cords of love unto yourself, that you would show to us the extent of your love and your forgiveness in Christ, and that in days to come when we face the fiery persecution and tests of the enemy, that we would not succumb to the temptation and complain that we would not curse man or God, that we would not desire to throw in the towel and say, who cares? What does it matter? But rather, Father, we pray that, that that fellowship that we have with you and that joy that flows from that fellowship, that contentment, would secure our hearts would secure our lives for now and for all eternity. 
in you. For we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. You are welcome to make copies and give them to those in need. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. It is likely that the sermon or book that you just listened to is also available on cassette or video, or as a printed book or booklet. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, that's E-D-M-O-N-T-O-N, Alberta, abbreviated capital A, capital B, Canada, T6L3T5. You may also request a free printed catalog. And remember that John Calvin, in defending the Reformation's regulative principle of worship, or what is sometimes called the scriptural law of worship, commenting on the words of God, which I commanded them not, neither came into my heart, from his commentary on Jeremiah 7.31, writes, God here cuts off from men every occasion for making evasions, since he condemns by this one phrase, I have not commanded them, whatever the Jews devised. There is then no other argument needed to condemn superstitions than that they are not commanded by God. For when men allow themselves to worship God according to their own fancies, and attend not to his commands, they pervert true religion. And if this principle was adopted by the Papists, all those fictitious modes of worship in which they absurdly exercise themselves would fall to the ground. It is indeed a horrible thing for the Papists to seek to discharge their duties towards God by performing their own superstitions. There is an immense number of them, as it is well known, and as it manifestly appears. Were they to admit this principle, that we cannot rightly worship God except by obeying his word, they would be delivered from their deep abyss of error. The prophet's words, then, are very important when he says that God had commanded no such thing and that it never came to his mind, as though he had said that men assume too much wisdom when they devise what he never required, nay, what he never knew.